Okay, um, why are we here? I believe that everyone's here because everyone in the world has a purpose. To do good, to help others. I try to be the best father I can be. I try to be a role model, to try to pass on my, my teachings to my son. Everyone should be optimistic and uh, I never think negative about anything. To do our best to bring each other to the light. Awake people, I think that's what it is. To awake people to what's actually right. Who knows, maybe if we reach that zenith um, of light in between each other, we might be able to even communicate by somehow, by thoughts. Well, purpose on earth, I really don't know. It's just that what God guides you through, you have to go through it. I, I do what I can. I try to live the good life. I make my donations to societies that need it. Be an example for people so that they can follow you. It, I believe that even if one person follows you, if they look upon you, then, yeah, your life is worth living. I want to do something different for society, uh, w w uh, something that no one else does. So everyone should have the same purpose like that. Co-create and reproduce and evolve, mutate, become something different, better hopefully. That's about it. No other purpose. Well, I think once again, we see that when it comes to the major questions of life, there is so much confusion in the world around us. And uh, my hope this morning is that you came ready to hear some answers from God's Word to these questions, and specifically the question, why am I here? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my existence? What if God does not exist? By God, I mean uh, all-powerful, perfectly good creator of the universe who offers us eternal life. This God, what if this God does not actually exist? Uh, many philosophers wrestling with this question have concluded that if God does not exist, then life is absurd. If God does not exist, then life has no meaning, it has no value, and essentially it has no purpose at all. But God's Word speaks directly to this question and provides answers that I hope you are looking for or you are interested in seeking out this morning. So I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to ask our ushers to come to the front. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, you can just slip your hand up in the air, and the ushers are going to be walking back towards the back, and they'll just make sure a Bible gets into your hand. So don't be shy. If you need a Bible, take this one. And if you don't own a Bible, then just consider this our gift to you this morning. We would be really encouraged and blessed if you would take this home with you. If you did get one of those Bibles, then you're turning to page 1040 uh, for Romans chapter 1, page 1040. If God does not exist, and many people don't think about the implication of this in their lives, if God does not exist, then life is absurd. Listen to the words of Jean-Paul Sartre, a famous atheist philosopher. He wrote these words. He said, It was true. I had always realized it. I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. 
I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. Somerset Maugham said this, if one puts aside the existence of God and the survival after life as to doubtful, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself why I am here and how in these circumstances I must conduct myself. Now the answer is plain, but not so unpa- but so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. This is the sad reality if God does not exist. If there is no God, the answer to this question, why am I here, is absolutely simple. Life has no meaning. It has no significance. It has no purpose. It has no goal. It has no value. We, we all search for meaning in this life, though. Experientially, we are looking for a reason to exist. And even as you saw in that video, people believe that they're here for a reason. They believe that there's a purpose for our existence, even if there's so much confusion about what that actually is. Nobody lives as if there is truly no significance to this life. And by meaning, that's exactly what I mean. I mean significance. Why I matter. By purpose, I mean, what is the goal of my life? Is there a reason for my existence? And by value, I mean right or wrong. Is there good and evil and therefore a right and wrong way to live this life? You see, if there is no God, then all of these things, meaning, value, and purpose, they're merely an illusion. Do you see that? There is something that is self-imposed or self-determined may be determined by a collective whole, by a, a majority of people, but ultimately they're illusions. They just simply give us something to continue on in this life. They actually have no substance or no basis to them. By the way, this is not a new concept. And the pursuit for meaning, value, and purpose is nothing new. In fact, it's a concept that's as old as the Bible itself. The book of Ecclesiastes wrestles through this question, why am I here? What's the point of all this? And throughout the book, it's fascinating, there is one word that is used 34 times. It becomes one of the dominating themes of the book, and that word is vanity. In 12 chapters, this word is used 34 times, and the word means futility, or it's translated as a breath. In other words, it has no substance to it. It's pointless. It's worthless. It's fleeting. You might add that that by vanity, the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes means that life is absurd. And the book of Ecclesiastes lays out the search for significance We saw last week, if you were here, that this longing and desire for significance is one of the key evidences for God, that God, as Ecclesiastes tells us, has put eternity in our hearts. We all know that we exist for more than just this life. We all know that there is some kind of a transcendent being 
God has given us that God-shaped abyss in our hearts, that aching, the craving, the longing for Him. And as I quoted last week, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God. And that's essentially what the preacher says in the book of Ecclesiastes. He, he lays out this case for a search for meaning, and he goes after anything and everything he can in this world. He looks to this earth and this world, and he, he seeks out pleasure and power. He, he looks for meaning and purpose in food, in drink, in sex, in creativity, in career, in wisdom, in knowledge, in money, accumulating everything this world has to offer and finding that in the end, it is all vanity of vanities. It is worthless. It doesn't provide what the soul needs and what the soul longs for. And at the end of the book, after building this case for 12 chapters of the seeming meaninglessness of life, in the last two verses, The crescendo of the book, he lands with this powerful reality. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He ends with the understanding that everything is worthless if there is no God, but if there is a God, then life has all of those things, meaning, value, and purpose. And this makes sense of our experience, doesn't it? We search for significance because we are wired that way. We are wired to know that we are not an accident, that we matter. And as we looked at last week, the reasons for God begin to explain the reasons for humanity. And when we understand that God exists, we can begin to see why we exist. And so if God exists as creator, then his creation, by implication, is made with a purpose. I want us to go back into Romans chapter 1, and I know you've turned there already. We spent a little bit of time there last week, and I think it's helpful for us maybe to dive in here again and see how the Apostle Paul sheds light through this passage on both our purpose, but also, listen, our predicament. And so let's read it together, beginning at verse 18. Follow along with me. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves." 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we we need to hear from you. We need to be instructed by your word. We need to be reminded that our lives have significance, that our lives matter to you, that our lives have been given a purpose and value outside of ourselves. That not only do you exist, but God, you desire to reveal yourself to each heart, to each person. And I pray, God, for every heart in this place, that, Lord, you would speak directly to them this morning that you would take your word and you would bring conviction, that you would bring comfort and encouragement, that you would meet every person, whether they're questioning the reality of the existence of you or whether they're wrestling with the implications of the truth they already know and believe, whether they're struggling to live their lives in accordance with your truth. God, we just confess to you how needy we are, how dependent we are upon your word, and we thank you, God. We thank you that you have not been silent, that you have revealed yourself to us, and we ask you, God, we invite you now, speak to us. We humbly bow before you and want to sit under your word, Lord, so instruct our hearts, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to draw out two main thoughts for us this morning with some, uh, some other thoughts underneath those two thoughts, but the first thought I want to give you is this. We were created intentionally. And, and, and contrary to an, an atheistic perspective that does not believe in the existence of God and therefore has to conclude that there is no purpose, meaning, and value, that there was no intentionality in us being here, that we were mere uh, accidents, birthed out of cosmic chaos, The Word of God tells us that we were created, that we were formed, and we were designed, and we have meaning, value, and purpose that is God-given. That this was no accident. And I want to encourage you, the first thing we see that we were created intentionally, first is this, to know God. To know God. In verse 19 and 20, imply this reality. Though we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, verse 19 tells us this, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him And I just want you to to hone in on those words, know and knew, and I want you to see that the implications of God's creative activity in the world was to put himself on display. It was to make himself known. That is the primary reason for creation. Natural revelation, that is the world around us, it screams the existence of God. Beyond that, we saw last week, too, that internally God has has embedded it in the very fabric of our DNA. Our consciences bear witness to the reality of an objective standard of truth, of right and wrong, of good and evil. And God's special revelation right here, the Word of God, is a powerful testimony to the fact that God comes alongside His creation and says, I want you to know me. 
I am not so distant. I haven't wound this world up and just left it to, to go on uh, on its own. I have actually made myself known in a very personal and intimate way. And listen, to know God speaks directly to the idea of meaning for us. Why we matter. And God says, you matter. I, I made you to know me and to be known by me. Nothing is more evident about the heart of God than his desire for fellowship with those created in his image. God wants humanity to know him. That is why he has put himself on display. He has not kept himself hidden from his creation, but he desires to put himself on full display to his creation. Now, I want to make a distinction here. God desires that his creation not just knows things about him. And all the world is without excuse. They, they should know things about God, and that's what Paul makes clear in Romans right here. His eternal power, his divine attributes, his divine nature. They should know some of these things about him as they look at the world around him. But God drives deeper than that. He is interested in his creation knowing him personally, intimately, and relationally. This is why the creation story in Genesis is so vital to our understanding of the entire Bible and of the Christian faith. It tells of a God who created everything, but then it zeroes in on God's creation of humanity and, and God creating humanity with a unique and distinct purpose. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the language. It says that when God created man and woman, he created them in his image. Whatever else that may mean, it certainly means nothing less than the ability to have a special relationship with God. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creative activity. After they were created in God's image, we see that Adam and Eve are continually experiencing deep and intimate fellowship and communion with God. Genesis speaks of man walking with God and talking with God, and this is very personal, intimate language. It speaks directly to the idea of meaning in our lives. I finished a book on the weekend, and in this book... The, the man, the main character in the book, real it's true life story, kind of a, a bit of a biography. But the man commented on, on one of his dear friends, and, and he talked to him about, talked about him having a, a non-existent relationship with his father. And, and he used this as one of the primary influences in his life that, that helped create and produce the man he later became, a very public figure who was very opposed to the existence of God, an adamant atheist, one of the new atheists, one of the four horsemen. And, and this man, he, he, he longed, it said, to have a relationship with his father, but his father treated him as if he didn't even exist, treated him as his son, as if he wanted nothing to do with him. He was so distant and removed from him, and, and as a little boy, he simply longed to know his father. He longed to have a relationship with the father, and even he tried on multiple occasions to, to, to make his life so that his father would have something to relate to him about and, and to, to, to engage with him on. But to no avail. Now, I think of, of these precious children this morning 
and the parents who stood up here before us. And I, I can't help but think how embedded this is in, in the life of a child, and I see this in my own children, how quickly they know the voice of their parents, how quickly they know the smell of their parent, how quickly they know the presence of their parents around them, and how so often they long for their parents. Sometimes they make that very well known. And no one else will do. Do you notice that? I mean, we've all had those moments with our kids where they're crying and, and they're agitated and, and somebody else is holding them. And you know that the answer is for you as the parent to go and scoop your child up. And the moment you do, there's this calming influence on the child because they know they're in the hands of their parents. You know, our hearts long to know and to be known by God. Even as followers of Jesus Christ, once we enter into a restored relationship with God, it simply begins a never-ceasing pursuit of knowing Him. And there's something in us, Christian or non-Christian, that strives to be in a deep, intimate relationship with God, and we fight and fight because nothing else will do. We are never satisfied until we find that freeing, comforting relationship that gives us meaning. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. You, know, you can put this as the theme of his life. He says, that I may know him. This is 30 years into his walk with Christ. His heart screams, I exist to know him. I want to know him more. And isn't it true that as Christians, look, we long, even with all the competing affections of this world and of this life, we long deep down inside for the day when we will see our Savior face to face, amen? I mean, we, we have this desperate longing in our hearts, and 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. This is the longing of the human heart. It is to know Him. Secondly, it is to love Him. It is to love Him, and this flows directly out of the knowledge of God. And to love God really speaks to this idea of value, of understanding, a right and wrong, good and evil, a direction for our life that is true. Knowing God is essential, but loving God is the natural response to a true relational knowledge of God. But I think it's helpful, you know, we need to rightly understand love. Before we do that, look at verse 21 with me. Again, a, a superficial knowledge of God is not enough. A deep, intimate, relational knowledge is what God is after. For although they knew God, they did not, look at this, honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Those two, two words, honor Him and give thanks to Him, are so critically important. And they speak to this idea of what it means to truly love God. To honor Him and give thanks to Him are the deepest expressions of our love for Him. We so often think of love mainly as a feeling. 
And to be sure, it certainly includes that and is nothing less than that. But love is more than a mere emotion. It's more than a feeling. Sounds like a song. It is instead a deep abiding commitment to someone. Listen to what John Benton says. He says, love for God is not love for him at all unless it expresses itself in a practical way. Just as obedience to the Lord is an indication of our love for him, so is it also a proof of our fear of God. That's what Jerry Bridges says. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says. He says, love to God and obedience to God are so completely involved in each other that any one of them implies the other two. Nathaniel Emmons says this, obedience to God is the most infallible evidence of sincere and supreme love to him. That's what the knowledge of God should lead to in our lives. An unabashed, unashamed Love that is expressed through our obedience to his every will and word. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. He said to his disciples, remember, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, every once in a while, probably more often than not, um, when I'm dealing with my own children, there's going to be a running theme of children this morning, okay? Okay. I'll, I'll often be dealing with my children who have been very disobedient to me, and uh, I'll, I'll send them up to their room, and I'll, I'll allow them to sit up there and feel uh, the pain of the silence as they wait for me to come. It's good for them. It's good. But, but I'll often sit down with my kids, and you know, before we ever talk about any form of discipline, I'll sit down with my kids, and I want to draw their heart out, and I want, to, I want to help them see what they're doing and why they're doing it. I don't just want to tell them that's wrong, this was right, and you need to do this and not that. I want them to see why they're doing what they're doing so they can dig down deeper and address the real problems going on in their heart. And so often, I'll say to my children, as they've been very, maybe very blatantly disobedient, you know, they, they knew the rules, they knew what I asked them to do, and they decided to do something completely opposite or totally ignore what I said, and I'll look at my kids sometimes, and I'll, I'll say this, I'll say, I'll say, Karis, I'll say, do you love me? Some of you are like, wow, that's a real guilt trip you're pulling there, Ian. <laughs> and I understand that may seem that way, but, but I, I don't leave it there. And you, know what, you know what the inevitable answer is for my children? You know, through tears and arms crossed, yes, Dad, you know I love you. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? And I'll say again, do, do you really love me? Yes, Dad. Oh, eight-year-old eight little girl. I'll say, well, then why don't you obey me? You know, and we'll have this conversation. And, and you say, why do you do, why do, would you ask them that question? That really sounds like you're just heaping on a guilt trip. Listen, here, here's why I do that. Because I'm, I want them to see, and I always lead it towards this. I want them to see that in the moment of their sin, they are making a statement about who they love most. And, and in the moment of sin, they are saying, Dad, and this is what I help them see. Dad, I love me right now more than I love you. 
I will obey me and my will instead of you and your will. And I want them to see that in their heart, this is an issue of who they love. And you have to see this connected to the gospel. This is what God does with us. This is what Jesus is saying. Who, who do you love? I mean, if, you, if you say you love me, but you don't obey me, don't be confused. You don't love me the way you think you do. You actually love yourself a whole lot more. That, that's all of us. That's all of us in the moment of sin. We are making that statement to God. God, I love me more than I love you. And it's helpful for us to see it with that language so that we can repent and say, God, help me to love you more than I love myself. They did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. Do do you see there is a a kind of resentment here? There is certainly no sense of love and adoration and affection. Honor and giving thanks are two crucial ways of demonstrating true love. Why? Why is that? Because they recognize his authority. That's honor. Exercised with the intent to do us good. That's giving thanks. Our love for God is always our response, by the way, to His far greater love for us. It's not driven by mere duty, as many people live. This legalistic, moralized way of living. Instead, listen, it is to be birthed out of a deep desire to love God by showing him honor and gratitude. We are created intentionally to know God, to love God, and then finally flowing out of our love of God to worship God. This this is, there's a lot of overlap here, but you have to see that these are like steps, one step leading up to the next step, and this top step is the most important. And this idea of worshiping God speaks to our ultimate purpose. That God has created us with the ultimate purpose of of glorifying Him through living a life of worship. Verse 25, look down at the Word of God with me, says this. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and notice this, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. To worship God is to realize the purpose for which God created us. That's a quote from Herbert Carson. Loving God finds its culmination in worshiping God Worship means to ascribe worth or value, and it entails adoration, service, and devotion. Worship is the declaration by a creature of the greatness of his creator. Uh, A.W. Pink said it like this, Worship is the adoration of a redeemed people occupied with God himself. And you can see in that a, a people whose love and affection is so driven towards God. They're so occupied with all that he is and all of his beauty, splendor, majesty, holiness, perfection. That worship is the natural response. 
God has created us and designed us to be a people who will worship him. And, and I've had this conversation with many people, and, and re- very recently I sat with a man and I expressed to him, this to him, that this is our purpose, is to worship God. And he, he looked at me, as many have said to me in the past, and said, well, that sounds like your God is incredibly selfish. Ever heard that? Your God creates people to worship him? That is so selfish. And we, we understand why somebody can come to that conclusion, right? Because if any one of us said that you need to worship me, we, we know because we are, listen, we are all too familiar with this kind of living. We, we know that the desire to be worshiped is something that is selfish in our own hearts. And so we wrongly attribute the same motives that we struggle with to God, forgetting that this God is perfect and pure and without sin. I think we even understand, though, on a human level, the value of knowing somebody who is significant or special, somebody who brings us a great degree of joy, and, and you know, we just, we leave their presence and we feel like it was a privilege to be with them. You ever, you have those people in your life? Like, those are the kind of people that you would say to your friends, you've got to meet my friend so-and-so, right? You've got, you just, you just got to know, if you knew them, like, I'm telling you, it would be so good. It's the kind of person that you'd be taking selfies with all over Facebook, right? And just, this is my friend. It is true, isn't it? At a human level, being around certain people in our lives just tends to bring us a greater joy. And I just want you to imagine now being around A being who is infinitely greater than any person who is unimaginably beautiful, who is majestic and perfect and filled with splendor, in whose presence you stand in awe, whose glory emanates before you in such a way that you need to fall down and bow on your face before them. You just can't help yourself in whose presence and in the posture of worship, you experience, listen, you experience in that person's presence the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest peace, the greatest rest, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest meaning, and the greatest purpose. If that is who God is, and the Bible says it is, then listen, listen, it would be selfish and prideful and unloving if he did not invite you to know, love, and worship him. You see that? Your soul longs and craves this God, and it actually craves to worship Him. It really does, whether you see it and believe it or not. You see this. Listen, the call of God to worship Him as God is not the height of pride, but it is the height of love. And He wants you to do what you were made to do. So the question naturally flowing out of this, listen, if you can grasp this in the broadest sense that our existence... The reason we exist here is to to know, to love, and to worship God. Then the natural question is, what prevents us from doing this? Why do we struggle with this? Why do people not just naturally do this? Now, these two are our second main point, and that's this. We are corrupted internally. Yes, we were created intentionally for this purpose, but our greatest problem lies right here. We are corrupted internally. You see, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. 
And as I quoted already, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. But listen, our hearts are restless because we refuse to find rest in Him. How are we corrupted internally? Well, first, Paul tells us that we suppress the truth of God. We naturally suppress the truth of God. And we read that right in verse 18. Look at it again with me. It says, Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes on to talk about how what can be known by God is plain. But again, that overarching thought is this. We, we can see, we can perceive, we can know, and yet there is willful action here. And we choose to suppress the truth that has been revealed to us. Because of our sinful disposition, every person is naturally inclined to follow sin and resist God. Uh, This phrase could actually be translated like this, people who are constantly attempting to suppress the truth by steadfastly holding to their sin. You see, when given the option, will you worship God and choose to live in obedience to Him, or will you pursue a life of sin and unrighteousness? The the natural man, the fleshly fallen man, longs for the sin. It leaves the, the pursuit of truth, and it pursues the path of unrighteousness. And that unrighteousness begins to dominate every part of his being. As Paul declares in the following verse, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Again, don't miss this. His point is that all people have internal, God-given evidence of His existence and nature, but they are universally inclined to resist and assault that evidence. We're corrupted internally and we suppress the truth of God. Secondly, notice this, we're corrupted internally and we reject the authority of God. Again, we've looked at this briefly, but we need to draw it apart some more. Man fails, in verse 21, to honor God and give thanks to Him as God. Instead, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. You see the pathology of sin. Sin leads to further sin, to further downward spiral. But I want you to see this, that man fails to honor God as God. This is the basic expression of the root sin of pride, which is at the core of man's fallenness. Our roots in of pride manifest itself like this all the time. We fail to honor God as God. The word honor is a very important word theologically and biblically. The word is doxa in the Greek, which means glory. The greatest crime in the universe is a failure to honor God or to give Him glory. The Westminster Catechism says that it is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, after they were created in God's own image to know Him, to love Him, and to worship Him, Adam and Eve uh, walked with God, continually experiencing His presence and His glory. They, they experienced it unhindered, veil removed, no sin in the way in impeding that relationship. It was the purest kind of walk with God that they could have possibly imagined. They communed directly with Him. They praised Him and they acknowledged His glory and honor. 
But the Bible tells us that when they sinned by disobeying God's command and seeking to gain glory and honor for themselves, do you remember what happened? Immediately they saw that they were naked, they were ashamed, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Sin in that moment brought a separation between God and man. Adam and Eve no longer sought God's presence. They no longer yearned to bring him glory. And ever since that time, fallen man has sought to avoid God and to deny his glory and even his very existence. Men and women reject God because they do not like him. It's a novel idea, isn't it? That they simply, it's honestly, it's almost as simple as that. They do not like God. They do not like God as he has revealed himself. They, they may like a God of their own imagining, of their own invention, a God that is much more like themselves, and therefore they can say that they like God because that's the God that they worship and serve. But the truth is, is that they do not like the God who really is. And what, what humanity tends to dislike most about God is his sovereignty. And that is his most basic attribute. For listen, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. If you can strip away his sovereignty, then you really do not have any kind of God at all. Certainly not a God worthy of our worship. Sovereignty refers to God's rule over creation, over the universe, and in the case of God, it refers to the being who is ruler over all, including humanity. The, the problem of the heart is that we long to be independent of God's authority. And this is what Adam and Eve were tempted with in the garden, remember? As the serpent approached them and tempted them to disbelieve God's word, what he was doing was he was undermining God's authority he was undercutting the word of God, and he was saying, God is not worthy of being trusted. God is not worthy of being listened to and obeyed. In fact, you should be separate from him. You should be autonomous. You should be your own God. And though we don't use that language, that is exactly the way in our fallenness we actually live. Humanity is like a child living in perpetual rebellion against their father unwilling to come under his authority. And instead of honoring him as God and thanking him, we tend to reject and despise his authority. That leads to the third and final point, and that is this. We are corrupted internally in that we suppress the truth of God, we reject the authority of God, and we worship the creation of God. Verses 22 through 25 spell this out in a powerful way. You see, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and this word is going to be familiar in this chapter. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They switched them up. They got their places wrong. The order is all skewed. And therefore, as an indictment against them, as a judgment upon them, this is a frightening thought. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Oh, this sounds so much like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? 
They're no different than us. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Don't miss that this exchange is utterly devastating to humanity, and it is utterly ingrained in humanity. Every one of us is inclined towards this kind of an exchange where we we reject the truth of God, and we change it up for a lie about God. We create a God of our own imagination and invention, one that is much more palatable to us, one that is much more like us. And here's the ultimate indictment on humanity. We worship the creature rather than the creator. Remember again, worship entails adoration, service, and devotion. It is to ascribe worth and value to something. You know, the truth of humanity is that we all worship something. Even the irreligious person is a worshiper at heart because God has designed us to worship. Here, what is being laid out is a case against the idolatry that's embedded in the human heart. Idolatry, uh, as Webster's Dictionary defines it, is this. Listen, extreme adoration, reverence, and love for something. While the Bible states that God himself is the only one worthy of these things, just think for a second about the first commandment. What is the first commandment God gives to worship him alone? You shall have no other gods before me. I am to be the only object of your worship, of your affection, of your devotion, of your service. It is me and me alone. And that is the overarching command. Every other command falls underneath that. And if you get that wrong, everything else is destroyed. You see, to not worship him alone is sin. Listen, Christian, this is important for you too. To not worship him alone is sin. We must, I think, in our Christian thinking, redefine sin. You see, so often we think of sin, so many of us do, as only breaking God's laws, right? But again, think of the first commandment for a second. No other gods before me. According to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It's a worship disorder of the heart, which is ultimately, listen, an identity disorder. Tim Keller says these words. He says, sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from Him. I think that is, that's so profound. We seek, you see, to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to our significance, our purpose, and our happiness than our relationship with God. This is the struggle in every single human heart. We take good things in our lives, even good things that God has provided us, and we make them ultimate things, meaning that we end up deifying them. In fact, listen to this, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify We look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion. 
And while idolatry in the most blatant sense isn't very prevalent in our culture, not not in the sense here where we're exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, that is happening all over the world, and it is happening in parts of our culture as well. Certain religions are, are filled with these kind of idols. But listen, the mistake that we often make is believing that just because this kind of idolatry is not prevalent in our culture, that there is not a deeper kind of idolatry taking place in our culture. I would say that the modern forms of idolatry are abounding in our culture. These are the things, these idols are the things that we find our identity in when we are meant to find our identity in God. And so we take that identity and exchange it for what should be our true identity. The things that have been created become our gods, and even as Christians, our hearts are so idolatrous, we face this and we wrestle. I wrestle with this constantly in my own heart, like I know you do too. Our temptation is to take the good things and make them the ultimate things. I mean, just think about that in your life for a minute. You say, well, what, what might that be, that be? In our culture, like, let's make no mistake about it. I mean, money and possessions, materialism, all of this, we're so saturated, we're bombarded with advertisements. You need this, and if you have this, your life is going to be so much better, so much greater. You'll be so much more fulfilled, and so we, we run around looking for everything we can get our hands on, and when we get it, what happens? This is how you can tell something makes a poor God. What happens when you get it, and it doesn't provide that thing that you were looking for? It still leaves you empty and unsatisfied. Or, or you say, well, well, no, I'm pretty satisfied with what I have. What happens if, if your home that is your idol or your car that's your idol is taken away from you? What happens if your bank account is suddenly drained because of economic collapse? And then what? Then you see. You see what your God is because you'll be anxious and fearful. The thing you put your weight on, your hope in, when it's destroyed, leaves you bankrupt. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe, you, maybe your kids have become your God. And, and you know how you find out very quickly that your kids make a poor God? What happens when they grow up and they don't turn out the way you expected them to? What happens when they disappoint you? What happens when they rebel against you? And you find yourself on the ground going, what happened? What happened? I did everything right and why didn't they turn out the way they should have? And your life is utterly in ruins. It's possible, listen, it's possible that you have made your child your God and the expectation that your child should turn out a certain way. What about your spouse? How often do we look to our spouse to meet every single one of our needs and we hold them up to a God-like status? The problem being that they can never be what we need. And so when they don't, listen, when they don't, what do we do? When they're not enough, what do we do? And we could go on and on about all kinds of things that become our gods. I mean, money and possessions are so crystal clear in our culture. Pleasure, food, drink, sex, entertainment. Let me just ask you, you say, well, what might my God be? Let me ask you, when you are most stressed and anxious, where do you turn? Where do you turn for relief? Where do you turn for peace and rest? When something is taken from you that 
you valued, how do you respond? Is it with fear, anxiety, and worry? Does it feel like your life is unraveling and falling apart? Let me ask you right now, what is the answer to this question? If I only had this, I would be satisfied. If I only had blank, I would need nothing else. See, these are the things that we seek out to give us meaning, purpose, and significance. These are things that are prone to become our gods, good things, many of them good things, listen, that become ultimate things and therefore become idolatrous things. And the truth of the matter is, none of these things will do. It cannot do what only God can do. See, Christianity has often been called a crutch. But I want to encourage you this morning, Christianity is not a crutch, it's a cure. Christianity is the cure for our sinful hearts, for our idolatrous hearts, hearts that have exchanged the glory of the immortal God and foolishly traded them for images resembling mortal man, mortal things, It's a cure to our sin-sick heart that is looking for significance. It's looking for meaning, purpose, value. And it's looking so often everywhere else but God. But while we have de-godded God by exchanging the truth about Him for a lie and worshiping the creation rather than the Creator, listen, the good news is that God in His love and grace calls out to us. He doesn't just let us flounder. He doesn't just let us sink into the muck and mire of our own sinful, wretched hearts. He calls out to us and he says to us, listen, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, come find your meaning and your hope in me, not in a religious system, not in the idols that you can pursue, not in the pleasures of this world, not in the pursuits of this life. Come and find them in me. Find that I and I alone am satisfying. Find that I and I alone can give you what your heart so desperately longs for. Those idols can't provide what you're looking for. Jesus says, only I can do that. And though this relationship between humanity and God is broken by our sin, our God has come with the cure. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, when believed, brings hope, joy, peace, and life. Only through the gospel, in that restoring of that relationship back to God, can we truly live as God has designed us to live. Can we truly find the answer to this question, why am I here? To know, to love, and to worship Him is made possible by believing in Jesus Christ. The one who came to wash all our sins away, to bridge the gap back to God to open our eyes, to restore us to life. This is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that the only way? What will my future look like? Where am I going based on the decision that I make? That's next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have not kept silent. We thank you, God, that in your grace, 
you have created us intentionally. You have created us with purpose, meaning, and value. We matter deeply to you. God, you, you want to know us. You want us to know you. You want us to love and worship you. And God, we can see in the cross that we matter deeply to you because God, you could have left us. You could have left us to our sin. You could have left us, Lord, in rebellion. You could have left us, Lord, in our rejection of you. And yet, God, you saw us when we were yet sinners. You saw us, Lord, when we were your enemies. And out of deep love, you came for us. God, you loved us so much that you would come and do the unthinkable. You would lay down your life not, not for your friends, but for your enemies, so that we might know you as friends, so that we might know you as Father, so we might know you as King and as Lord. And God, I pray for every heart here that that would be the truth in their heart right now, that they would look to you and see that you are all of those things and so much more, that your desire for them is not to find purpose and meaning and identity and value in the things of this world, but to see this world as pointing to you, the one true source of all of those things. God, help us. We are weak. We struggle with this daily. And so, God, we confess this to you and we say, God, would you take us as we are and would you continue to shape and mold us? Would you change us, Lord? Would you draw out the sin in our hearts? Would you show it to us? And then, God, would you remind us of your grace and your mercy? Would you remind us, Lord, that you love us still, that there's nothing we can do to earn your grace and your favor, but, Lord, it has been done and finished and completed on the cross God, we want, we want our worship to be to you and you alone. So God, would you help us now that we might live a life that declares, may there be no other name on the altar of our praise but the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.